0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky.
1: listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as he calls us to take on his yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew 14:1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist, he has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised her with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus, This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
0: Hey, good morning. How about that choir? That was amazing, wasn't it? Thank you, Mandy and others. Well, it's such a delight uh, that our church is walking through the Gospel of Matthew. Kind of a delight until you get to a passage like this, actually. Um, But it's a delight for me, not only because my day job involves teaching the Gospels a lot, but also especially because the Gospels are this amazing gift to the church that that are meant to shape our hearts and our minds through these wonderful stories about Jesus, what he said and did which makes the story before us today all the more odd. The four Gospels, which are at the very heart and core of the Christian faith, are theological biographies. That is, they're telling us the life story about one person, Jesus, who is also God. And this is because to be a Christian is to be a follower, a worshiper, of one who is seeking a particular person. Jesus, and therefore the Gospels telling these stories about him are so important because to be a Christian is to say, I am following this person, which again makes this story that we just heard read very odd. It's one of the very few stories in the Gospels that's actually not directly about Jesus. Jesus does appear in verse 1 and verse 12, but just to kind of frame the story, instead the story is about some other people, John the Baptist, a royal couple named Herod Antipas, and his second wife Herodias, and and her teenage daughter Salome. And it turns out that these characters and their choices do have something to teach us about what it means for us to be disciples of Jesus. That's why it's in the gospel. But before we can figure that out, I think we need to figure out what Matthew is trying to say. So I want to pause before we look at the story again more closely and pray. So let me lead us in prayer once more. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you exist and that you are the rewarder of those who seek you, and so I know that today people are coming with all kinds of stuff going on, fears and anxieties, numbness, distractedness, pain, physical pain and emotional pain, joy and hope. The whole gamut of the human experience, I'm sure, is represented here this morning And so we pause and ask you to come and do something we cannot do for ourselves, which is help us see you in these moments. So please come by the Spirit and speak. And I pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. All right, I encourage you to look at the story in your bulletin or if you have a Bible. And I just want to kind of walk through it and help us understand it. Now. This story starts with a VIP in Galilee in Jesus' day. His name was Herod Antipas the Tetrarch. Now, I would imagine most of you have heard the name Herod before, but the reason you've heard the name so often is not actually for the reason you think it is. The reason you might have heard the name Herod and the reason it sounds so familiar is because in the Bible and in ancient history, there were actually a bunch of Herods. They were all related to each other, they're all but they're not the same person. So when you're reading the New Testament you'll actually see Herod appear quite a few times, but there are a bunch of different Herods. There was one at Jesus' birth, there was one during Jesus' ministry, a couple of them. There was one on the night Jesus was arrested, in, both in Luke and in Acts. There's one that uh, is in charge of the martyrdom of James and that Paul has to stand before. And they're not all the same people, but we tend to naturally lump them all together. So the confusing part is that Herod was a family name that, again, a lot of related people used, and sometimes they went by another name like Antipas or Archaelis, and sometimes they just went by Herod. I'm not sure what the technical term for a group of Herods is, whether it's a flock or a litter or a pack or a gaggle, but there were lots of them, and it makes it very confusing. Actually, I do know what the technical term for a group of Herods is, gang of punks, because <laughs> All these Herods, all the various ones, were not good people. And it all started in the previous generation with a man named Herod, who was incredibly successful, and he became known as Herod the Great. He was not a Jewish man, but through his relationships with the Roman Empire, he got to be declared king of the Jews, and for decades he ruled over Palestine. And he was known as a cruel and exacting and paranoid leader. This is the Herod that we met back in Matthew chapter 2, and we hear the stories about at Christmas time, where he heard that there was a king of the Jews who had been born. The Magi had said this to him, and so he tries to kill him. This is that same Herod the Great for fear that he would be overthrown. And it turns out that event from Matthew chapter 2 was not an isolated incident. We know from history that Herod the Great had at least six sons and two, by two different wives and he killed three of them and one of the wives for fear that they were going to try to overthrow him. Eventually he does die and his large kingdom over the Jewish people is broken up into four parts, and that's what the word tetrarch means. Two of the parts go to one of his sons, Archelaus, which is kind of the Jerusalem area. One goes to Herod Antipas. That's the guy we're talking about today, and one one part goes to a guy called Philip that you also see in the New Testament, and then there was another son named Philip as well, so it gets really confusing. Now, I tell you all this not to wow you with historical knowledge and and I've been preaching for a long time and I know that some of you are like totally into history and you'd love for me just to like talk about this for the next 10 minutes. Some of you are like, I don't care anything about that. So I'm going to keep it brief and say, I'm not telling you this to, to wow you with all this historical knowledge, but I tell you this because it sets the tone and color for our story. It makes a lot of sense of what happens in our story. And what I mean is this, The mass amounts of Jewish people in Jesus' day, people like Jesus and others, were poor, heavily taxed, living a near subsistence life. And they are being ruled by a very small group of extended family members, all these Herods, who are not Jewish, who are known for their extravagance and immorality, and who are constantly angling and vying with each other, fighting with each other, trying to take power. Because what happens is Palestine is existing in the first century as one of the colonies of a much larger reality called the Roman Empire. And as the Roman Empire is going back and forth and different emperors are taking over, that often means that whoever's in charge in Israel or or Judea is also changing as well. So this Herodian family is constantly fighting with each other. And they're always paranoid that somebody is going to rise up and maybe the Jewish people are going to rise up and cause trouble. And in fact, that's what often happens. The Jewish people believed that God was going to send a Messiah, a Savior who was going to come and bring about the kingdom of David. And so all these Herodian leaders are very paranoid and always very scared of what might happen. So our point is, That in first century Palestine, the time of Jesus, it was a powder keg of religious and political and economic and moral conflict always on the verge of exploding. If you think we live in a polarized time, which we do, our country is polarized, it was nothing like first century Palestine. It makes our American politics look like a hippie love fest. Because in the first century, it was bloody. So now the problem is that that Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus, some 30 years later, you have one of his sons, Herod Antipas, who is ruling in this area, and there's this prophet, there's a prophet named John who's out by the Jordan River, and he's baptizing people, and he's saying that a king is coming. And this John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, he is his own man. He, he's not beholden to any other religious group. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He is like the ultimate hipster. Right? He's got a long beard, eats only organic food, craft beer only, probably roasts his own coffee beans, not influenced by anyone. He's just his own man. He's on a mission like the old prophets Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And the problem is Thousands of Jewish people are coming to him and receiving his message. Even Romans, even some Roman centurions are attracted to his message that there's a kingdom coming. And so Herod Antipas, he cannot ignore this guy because these crowds are a problem for him. But then we see in verses 3 to 5 that it gets very personal. Because, it, see, you turn, it turns out that John the Baptist is not only just preaching this general message, he is explicitly calling out Herod and saying that he is being immoral because of what he had done. And what had Herod done? Well, there was this woman named Herodias who was married to another of Herod's brothers, right? His, one, of his son, one of Herod the great sons, Philip. And she was very ambitious not satisfied with her station in life, so she divorced Philip, one of the other sons of Herod the Great, and hooked up with Philip's brother, Herod Antipas, the guy in our story. And not only was this against Jewish law, it was also then a source of political instability for Antipas because he was married before this. When he was younger, he had married the princess of the neighboring kingdom, the Nabataeans, and now he divorced her, which made her father very mad, and marries his brother's wife, and she moves in with him and brings along their teenage daughter, Salome. So all of this is not only politically unstable, but then you have this prophet John who's out in the wilderness calling this out and saying, you who are claiming to be leader of the Jews, this is completely immoral. So what do you do when you're a totalitarian ruler and someone's daring to criticize you? Well, you arrest them. Like in China or Iran or Indonesia or communist era, Russia or Nazi Germany, whatever it is, this is what Herod Antipas does. He puts John into the dungeon that's underneath his palace, hoping that will shut him up. And it does. So just when Herod Antipas thinks things are settling down, then he starts to hear a report that someone even bigger and something more powerful is happening. There's this dude named Yeshua, Jesus, who is also preaching that there's a kingdom of heaven that's going to come to earth, just like John was, and even more, he's healing people, he's exercising demons, he's a wonder worker, and the stories are so amazing, they're almost unbelievable, and what's worse, he's traveling around He's not just staying by the River Jordan. He's traveling around, and thousands of people are flocking to him. And so this is Herod Antipas's situation. So look again at verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> at that time, Herod the Tetrarch, Antipas, heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. You see, there were lots of opinions about who John the Baptist was and who Jesus was and they were all tied into this idea that God is going to send a prophet in the spirit of Elijah to come and restore his kingdom and so there were different opinions on who exactly was behind what Jesus was doing what John was doing but Herod had a very clear paranoid idea in his head that it was actually the spirit of John the Baptist who he had killed, we'll get to here in a second, who had come back and was now filling this man Yeshua, this Jesus, and that's why all these powers were at work. And so now we get introduced to John the Baptist explicitly, and this is actually the third time we've met John the Baptist in Matthew you think of it like, I don't know if you ever go to art museums or see a lot of times paintings, especially in older times, were done in triptychs. There's like three parts to it. And it's good to think about the story of John the Baptist and Matthew in like three parts, he first appeared back in Matthew chapter 3, where he shows up and he's preaching again that the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand and all these people are flocking to him, like I was just saying. Then he appears in prison in Matthew chapter 11, and you may remember that while he's in prison, he actually has a bit of a crisis of faith, where he hears about the things that Jesus is doing, and he, knows, he, he remembers that he baptized him, and he was pretty sure that that was the guy... But what he didn't understand was that when he was preaching the kingdom of heaven was coming that he john understood that meant god is going to come and obliterate all injustice and all immorality people like herod antipas and bring his kingdom upon the earth and now he hears all these things about jesus healing people and welcoming people of all sorts and being friends of sinful people And he's confused by it, John is. So he sends his disciples to find out, are you the one or not? And Jesus very graciously says, yes, I am. Because what John did not understand is that the coming of the Messiah is in two parts. No one understood this before Jesus came. At first, he comes to make a covenant through his own sacrificial death. And then he will come to vanquish all his enemies later. So John is understandably confused by this. And then, that's the second part of John's story. And then now we get the third part here in Matthew 14 and we get it in the form of a flashback. So the point is that Herod hears these stories about Jesus, and then Matthew tells us a story like a prequel to a movie or a flashback in a TV show, and you can find the flashback in verses 6 to 12. Look there with me again. So here's the flashback. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And the king was distressed because of his oath and his dinner guest. He ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl and who carried it to her mother. And John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So it's very short. And in fact, typical of Matthew's style, He tells the story very quickly. If you read Mark's version, it's almost twice as long with a lot more detail. Matthew doesn't waste any time. He just gets right to the point efficiently. And I think it's helpful to kind of fill this out a little bit because the occasion was a birthday party at Herod Antipas's palace with the dungeon underneath it. And this is not a Jewish kind of party. This is a very Roman kind of party. It was the kind of party that Roman officials had. And we know what these were like. They were all-night revelries just for the men, usually with exotic foods and lots of wine and lots of boisterous talk and physical activities and entertainment. And the entertainment often consisted of bringing women in to dance. We can think of... Such parties today, such places today. Humanity hasn't changed. And the Herodians were particularly known for having these kind of wild parties. And all of this would have made any upright Jewish person, just like it does for us, feel a little uncomfortable with this and, and question the rightness of all this. But it's even worse than that in the story Matthew tells us. Who becomes the culminating exotic dancing high point? Of the night, who's the one we actually know her name? Who becomes the the center point of this seductive, boisterous, drunken dancing scene? It's Herodias's own daughter, Salome. That is to get it clear in your head: Herod Antipas's niece and now his stepdaughter becomes the female entertainment for the night, and Herodias the the mother we know arranged all this to accomplish her own manipulative goals she sends her young un, her young adolescent daughter among these drunken men to dance for them because the custom was when this happens the men would usually lavish her with gifts gold jewelry and and rubies of various sorts et cetera. and this was the hope and she's so successful Salome is that her drunken stepfather blurts out, probably spilling wine on his robes, that he promises with an oath that he will give her whatever she wants, taking the role of this grand host. Well, that's exactly what her mother, Herodias, had wanted, and she seizes the opportunity. Salome goes out of the door, consults with her mother, who's waiting in the wings like some grotesque, perverted beauty pageant, and she tells her what she wants. She wants the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Again, Herod had imprisoned John, but he was unwilling to kill him, probably not for moral reasons, but just because he was afraid of more revolt. But as with all weak men who are in power, and there are a lot of weak men in power, he is forced to choose between two bad situations he's gotten himself into. He's unwilling to break his drunken oath because it would make him look weak among his peers, and maybe he's superstitious about doing that, but he also... is afraid to kill John. So he finally caves to Herodias' and Salome's request. He sends word. It's probably the middle of the night. You know, the party has gone on. The guard awakens John. And John has probably been in prison for about a year. And then just like that, he is killed by beheading. And our flashback story ends with the grisly and disgusting scene of John being delivered, his head being delivered on a platter to Herod's table, and then to this poor girl who's probably gagging as she takes it to her mother. Are you disgusted yet? Do you feel sickened by this scene, this drunken party in the palace while most people outside are starving, the objectification of this young girl, the scheming, the manipulation, the gruesome execution of this righteous man? Welcome to Sojourn, we're glad you're here. But really, welcome to the reality of the Bible. This is not a book of fairy tales. This is not just a bunch of platitudes. This is real history that is telling us something. I feel sick by this. We should feel disgusted by the scene. Matthew wants us to feel disgusted by this scene. And I've been thinking about this story every day for the last couple of weeks, knowing that Sunday morning was coming, and trying to figure out how do you preach a sermon on such a horrible story? Well, as I've said to you many times over the last few years as I preach, and especially as we preach through narratives, it's very difficult to learn how to interpret biblical stories in a very practical way for our lives. A lot of times, what we do is we just kind of go to stories in the Bible and we're not sure what to do with them, so we kind of pick out little bits, morally or legalistically. Sometimes they're true things, sometimes they're not. I can imagine somebody could read this story and say, see, this is why we shouldn't dance, right? Or something like that. Or birthday parties are bad, at least especially if there's alcohol and dancing. Or don't invite a girl to the guy's night. It's gonna end up with somebody getting hurt or something. I mean, there's all kinds of like dumb things we could say about this story because it's hard to know what to say. But I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 this morning that says such powerful verses, all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful, it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training us in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's a great verse and that means these verses as well. It means this story. So how do we get at how could this story train and teach us and correct us in righteousness? Well, I think one way to get at that and what I want to do for you for just a few minutes here is help you think about how the main characters in this story can be used to teach us about God's way. I just want to highlight two people, the first Herod and then the second John. So how could Herod's story teach and train us in righteousness. Well, I think one thing we could say about Herod Antipas and Herodias as well is that they represent the downward spiral of sin that can happen in our lives through our choices. Notice, just think about Herod Antipas's life. He's filled with lust and ambition. That leads him to this unlawful marriage. That leads him to attempt to shut down God's prophet In a moment of drunken revelry, that leads him to this foolish, lust-based promise. That leads him to cowardice that's refusing to correct himself. And that ultimately leads to murder. Have you seen this pattern in your own life? How one bad choice leads to another? How small choices of cowardice and dishonesty and... Giving yourself over to lust, to overindulgence, slandering someone else makes it so much easier to do more of the same. This is how the soul works. We are always becoming, we're always changing, and I do think that Herod Antipas, like many of the characters in the Bible, model for us what can happen and what does happen in the downward spiral into self-destruction when we give ourselves over to poor choices. Pastor Kevin and I were talking between the service, and he he said it this way, and I think this is a great thing, that, you know, just to remember, your life really matters. Maybe you're a really important person. Probably most of you don't feel like you're a very important person in life, but your life matters, and the choices you make matter for you and for others. And, And it's remarkable to see that Herod is haunted by guilt. He's so haunted by guilt in this that he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead. And all of that is a function of him giving himself over to these choices. Big moral failures, friends, are always the function of a thousand little choices. Big moral failures are always the function of a thousand little choices. And I don't want you to hear that as a condemnation. I want you to hear that as an invitation an invitation to be aware that as we do, so we become. And that one of the ways these characters, these and many other characters, function is, they show us the self-destructive patterns that can be woven into our lives if we do not repent. I think Herod's story also challenges us about the deceptive power of wealth. You know, by the world standards I was thinking about this this week Herod Antipas, he was the man in charge., like, who has the power in this story? It's clearly Herod. John has no power. He's the one with all the money, the power, the control, the party, right? But this story shows us, as we see all throughout history through the Bible and other great human stories, that without integrity, without virtue, without godliness, all the power and money that anyone might have is a vapor. It can be gone in an instant. In a car accident, a moment of foolish passion, in a bad stock investment, in a revealing text that you sent to the wrong person, Even the most powerful and wealthy people live lives that are always on the precipice of disaster. We actually know what happened to Herod and Herodias. First, his father-in-law attacked him, his former father-in-law, because he had divorced his first wife, and he was defeated by his father-in-law until the Romans came in and intervened. About 10 years after this story, we know what happened from the story in Josephus, that Uh, another of the Herods got more power because he was friends with the Roman emperor and Herodias was so jealous that she said, we have got to go to Rome and make you the king of the Jews. So they go all the way to Rome but Herod Agrippa sent letters along with them, sealed letters that said that they were treason, that they were going to overthrow the emperor and so they lost everything and never returned and got banished to southern France, which doesn't sound too bad but it wasn't great in those days. (laughs) So the point is, it, it, even the most powerful people it all can be lost in a minute that is the deceptiveness of power and wealth and that's some of you here this morning i mean by world standards we're all super wealthy but some of you here are really wealthy powerful influential on top of your game people and there's absolutely nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy or influential for many people it is the result many christians it's the result of being faithful and wise and diligent people and worthy of honor but I just want to say to you and say to all of us and i've seen this in myself how privileges and blessings become expectations and how luxuries become necessities and how when people treat us with special honor and pampering that can become something we expect and even demand from others you know what i'm talking about and i think one of the ways That again, the many stories of the Bible show us the deceptiveness of of riches and wealth and honor, that we need to be humbled by this and recognize that in a character like Herod, we see the power of deception. Much more positively, and I think more importantly, is what God, I think, wants to say to us about John the Baptist, to finish the John the Baptist story that he's been telling us throughout Matthew. And, and you know, it's remarkable because John, John doesn't say a single word in the story. He's a passive character, but he's the most important one. And when you look at John the Baptist through Matthew, you see that he's a person of self-denial and humility and faithfulness. And we see in this story in particular that he's a person of courage, that he, it is undeniable that a big part of the reason this story is here to show how John was willing to, to stand up and call out what was wrong, even at his own peril. And you have to remember that there was no freedom of speech in the ancient world. That's a completely modern notion. It was often a suicidal thing to do. And in fact, Israel itself had a long tradition of prophets, people like Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and John, who would be called by God to speak up against the kings and the priests who were claiming to be from God, but were actually living in immorality. And that's exactly what John does. Sometimes, very rarely, it would go well for the prophet, like Nathan with David, right? But most of the time, when a faithful prophet stands up against someone who's doing something wrong, the result is death. And so too with John. And I think he is a model of courage to speak truth, even to our own peril period. But I also feel like I need to say an important qualifier, that most people who think they're prophets probably are not really, right? They're probably just jerks. So you do have to be careful that, as I like to say, I only trust reluctant prophets. I don't think John took any revelry in this. And I think it's important to note that that John is not criticizing, hear me clearly, John is not criticizing the rulers because he's trying to protect his own way of life. I'm afraid a lot of times when people criticize others, it's because they're afraid that what they have is going to be lost. That's the exact opposite of John's criticism. He's saying this is a ruler who's claiming to be from God and they are clearly living in immorality, not on some secondary issue, clearly living in explicit immorality. And so John has the courage to his own peril to speak that. But I think when I, when I look across Matthew and think about John the Baptist, I think the most important thing that Matthew would want us to take away from the story of John that ends in this chapter is that we need to learn to recalibrate or readjust our, expert, our expectations for what faithfulness looks like. I say that again. We need to recalibrate our expectations for what the outcome of faithfulness might look like. To say it another way, faithfulness to God does not always look like success. It's not all rainbows and butterflies. John the Baptist's story intentionally parallels Jesus' own life, who, note, is going to end up standing before the same Herod because his brother loses power, and this same Herod, Antipas, ends up being In Jerusalem, it so happens on the night Jesus is betrayed. And remember, Jesus ends up standing before him too. John and Jesus' lives parallel each other in all Christian lives in that faithfulness often looks like suffering. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus made it very clear by emphasizing that the Beatitudes end with this idea that those who are faithful to him will often be persecuted and misrepresented Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says that many people will speak against Christians and even fathers and sons and mothers and brothers and sisters will will end up fighting in disagreement over this and many people will hate Christians. I think of Matthew 10, 26 to 31 and how John is an example of this, that he spoke aloud because he feared God more than those who could kill the body and that's exactly what they did. I think in Matthew chapter 13, we've just been in the last few weeks, that speak about when when the gospel goes forth, many are going to oppose it, and many will reject it. As one commentator said it well, I think if Christ's forerunner, that is John, was thus treated, let not his followers, that's us, expect to be caressed by the world. (laughs) this is good enough for Jesus and good enough for John, you and I should not be surprised when the world doesn't tell us we're awesome. But that negative prospect for being faithful doesn't mean we need to despair. In fact, quite the opposite. One of the amazing things, especially as you get a little older and sort of reflect on life, one of the amazing things is that life's meaningfulness is paradoxically found Precisely in the combination of both joy and sadness. In the combination of both difficult and peaceful times. In fact, if our lives were only smooth sailing all the time, it would be entirely meaningless. That's deeply paradoxical. Because everything in us wants shalom. We want peace. And that's good and right. And, and there is a time coming when we'll enter into that in a full way that will not feel meaningless. But in our lives now, the reality is, in a deeply paradoxical way, that meaningfulness is found precisely in the midst of difficulties and suffering in the midst of faithfulness. And I think you see this over and over explicitly in the teachings of Scripture and in the models of John the Baptist, people like him, who is given forward, put before us as a model of faith, faithfulness to the end, even in the midst of suffering in prison and ultimate death. You know, on Sunday, February 15th, five years ago so five years and one week ago you may remember that 21 christian workers were publicly executed on their knees on a beach in libya by isis fighters 20 of them were egyptian christians one was from ghana they were not missionaries they were not pastors they were regular christians who were just in the area to try to serve and help the needy they were captured by isis and they were publicly executed, and the video was made of it, you may remember, and distributed online by ISIS as an attempt to threaten the rest of the world and say, "This is us." Well, the Coptic Orthodox Archbishop Angelos was in London when he heard the news, and he was immediately interviewed by all these news outlets and Egyptian Christians, and he, and he talked about how Egyptian Christians have often faced persecution. It's much more common for their whole experience going back to the earliest centuries of the church, and, and while he said this persecution and the killing of those 21 men was tragic and horrible, it's, it's much more shocking to us in the West than it was to their experience. They'd experienced this a lot. And just this weekend, I read a, a powerful interview in Christianity Today with the Archbishop looking back five years later on the event, and it's, it's wonderful. I'd encourage you to find it and read it. But there were several things he said. I just want to highlight two that I think speak right into our passage and connect so closely with our passage, and I'll end with this. First, he, he makes the, the Archbishop makes the observation about how that video really completely backfired on ISIS, because it was meant to show power, meant to show a, powerful, a power differential, but it turned out to be the opposite of what they had hoped. And he says, who were the powerful people in that video? The, the young men lined up on their knees praying with serenity and also with, with joy and encouraging each other in the midst of this, or the big men with big swords who have hoods over their faces to hide their identity? Who are who the powerful people in that situation? This is beautiful. This is the power of God being in a person that confounds the world and all its values and power and control. Those 21 modern martyrs stand in a long line of faithful people through the ages, including the guy we're talking about today, John the Baptist. And they are shown to be the ones with true power because they are faithful to God. The other thing he said that really struck me he was asked, like, how do you live? How do you Egyptian Christians live with this threat of persecution all the time? And he said this, quote, we live it with a sense of resilience. And we've never fallen into a state of either victimhood or triumphalism. Either victimhood or triumphalism. But we realize that it is the cross of Christ we're carrying. It's not the end of the road because there's a resurrection that comes after the cross and the empty tomb and so it is that in that hope that we continue to live and it's in that hope that we continue to carry that cross knowing that it will be removed from us that's so beautiful do you get the vision <clears throat> it's not victimhood or triumphalism and such a beautiful picture of John the Baptist as a model for us and for us to live as well neither being victims or whining or thinking and taking this triumphalistic attitude of, well, we're just better than them. But instead, sitting in this place of that this is the way of the cross and the way of the cross leads to the way of the resurrection. That Jesus' own death brings life and that all those who are united with him will enter into this new creation, including even those like John the Baptist whose end was death. And so it's not an accident that we love to end every service. And today I want to frame these elements that we partake of every week in this idea that in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he said, this breaking of my body is the death that will bring life to you and to others. And so too, in the spilling of his blood, this is death that brings life. And so as we think about John the Baptist and his death, if this is your first Sunday here, we're not like obsessed with death or anything, we're glad you're here, sorry this is kind of a weird passage, but I hope you see that it's a profoundly beautiful truth that even in someone's death, because of Christ's own conquering, there is life. So I'm going to pray, and if you're a Christian here, we would invite you to come forward And partake of these elements as an act of worship remembering that from death comes life if you're not a christian today um we're very glad you're here there's nothing magical in these elements that's going to do something for you this is an act of faith we'd love to talk to you more about what this all means but if you are trusting in christ this morning come forward as an act of worship uh, after i pray here i'm kevin jameson lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.